Welcome to the Comics Corner. I am John. I am your host for this evening, and I want to say thank you once again for joining us. Um, as per usual, we have my my dear friend, the the salt to my stew. The I, yeah, I, I'm I'm out of cooking many metaphors at this that point. time of the day. Yeah, um, Mr. Matthew Klein. Welcome, Matthew. So excited to be here uh, on the Comics Corner. Um, and I'm so happy that you consider me the seasoning to, to your meal. Um, that's great. We're going to slow, we're going to cook on slow and low here. Like I, I don't know either the cooking metaphors, but I'm here with you. Yeah. Yeah. You, you cook stew at a lower temperature for a longer time. Right. Yeah. Put it in a crock pot. You turn it on in the morning and then you leave and then you, when you come back. I broke from one work, of those once and it was the moment that Lauren Hubbard almost broke up with me very early in our relationship. Wait and that, stop. That's for you the You broke after. a crock pot. Yeah, how the hell do you break a crock pot? Like online? physically broke it? Well, also, I think I think before we get in there, uh, let's introduce uh, Josh Wilson. Is no, hold on. I can, I can wait. Did you like emotionally break its spirit? Like whatever. No, so so uh this was this was literally like the first month we've been dating. In fact, I'm I'm tempted to get Lauren Hubbard to come in here and tell the story on air. But um but yeah, first first month we were dating, uh we had different schedules with our, our classes and everything. So she texted me and said, Hey, can you put the crock pot, you know, um put it on to and and heat it up for, for dinner. And me, I I I am so the opposite of capable or knowledgeable when it comes to cooking. My family's motto was if you can dial it, you can eat it. So like I didn't even know how to boil spaghetti at that point. So I put the crock pot on the stove. I jumped ahead. I yep, I, I saw where this was going. <laughs> and just left it there thinking it was fine. And then she came in about, you know, an hour later and that thing had just cracked in about seven different places and it had been spilling and I didn't even realize it. So I, I went out and bought her a new crock pot right away. But that was, that was the day that, that, and, and one other incident early on where she pretty much was like, I don't know if this is going to work between us. Uh, li listeners. I feel like I should, I should qualify. Uh, hello. I'm here that, uh, for those of you who cannot see us, which would be all of you, uh, John's face <laughs> was a mixture, if you if you can imagine it, of confusion, sheer disappointment, and just a little bit of awe. I, I just, okay, hold on a second. The, our very special <laughs> guest today is the amazingly brilliant and talented and wonderful all-around awesome dude, Josh Wilson. Am I the, the crockpot of this recipe? If John is the stew and Matthew is the spice, am I the crockpot itself? Um, no, but I do want to... I, I want to deviate from Comics Corner for a second okay. and just point out that there are basic life skills that everyone should have. Um, so, like, you should know how to sew on a button. 
Right. Um, you should know how to cook pasta, scrambled eggs, and omelet. Um, you should know, um, like how to really scrub a bathtub, which is you cut a lemon in half and you put salt on the exposed part of the lemon and you use that to scrub. There's some basic life skills that everybody should know. Um, so I just want to point that out for a hot second. Um, we can have this as an extra series, John. Do you want you and me to teach Matthew basic life skills? I feel like you have enough now. We can I bring more off-season content, basic life skills teaching right then and there. It's not even a hack. It's just like you should know how to do this. I understand not knowing how to put in a zipper. Zippers can be very complicated. Yeah. yeah. But just some things that you should know. Um, I don't know how to segue this one um, other than perhaps saying. Um, Learning common prop- skills is magical. Speaking of magic. Well, I was going to say the crock pot, let's think of that as a cauldron. And let's uh, investigate a little magic here, shall we? God, we are so good at this. Yes. Yeah, it's going to be the best segue. Magical time. Yeah. You're on the comics corner. Um, So today we are talking about the Books of Magic, the miniseries by Neil Gaiman, uh, released in 1990. Um, and it was actually uh, a precursor to a 75-issue series uh, called The Books of Magic, which was written by someone else. And I'm desperately stalling while I look this up. Chitter chatter, chitter chatter. It was, it was, it was, I'm in the wrong text thread. Was it John Nay Reber? Yeah. Yes, John. Thank Nate, you. Yeah. We got there. Um, yes, thank you, Matthew. Um, okay, so that's where we are. So, a little bit of a let's we'll do a little bit of a recap. So, this is about a young British schoolboy um, who wears glasses and learns that he is perhaps one of the most powerful music- magicians ever, um, and is taken on a journey by um, some elder mentors um, and he has a pet owl. Uh, So in 1990, in 1990, this was written seven years before Harry Potter. Um, There are a lot of people who claim, oh, uh, Ms. Rowling stole some elements. I don't believe she did. I don't know. I'm not in her brain. If I were, I would understand. I would. I would leave that one alone. I um, would go out on a limb and say that J.K. Rowling, at this point, had never seen a comic in her life. Yeah, um, or perhaps a trans person. Okay, there. I'm sorry. I Ooh. said it. I went Ooh. there, what? and I'm gonna. I'm gonna... gonna turn the car around and back <laughs> out of that. Um, you know, fuck turfs, anyways. Before I go on a rant. Um, because I ranted, I think I ranted two episodes ago and it was pretty bad. So I'm not going to rant anymore. Uh, we love your rants, John. <laughs> Josh and I, I think you rant on most reason. of the episodes that I'm on. I think I bring the rant out in you. <laughs> I just, it's just, I don't, okay. I uh, we're not, we're not going, so, we're not going. We're turning around. Young boy, so what's young boy learns magic. Not, not He's about, not, a, not about, I, I, I do want to touch on your, your one point as to there have been, you know, questions about, Harry Potter being based off of this, but 
Gaiman has been on the record and said he does not believe so. He believes that both JK and him were simply stealing from TH White for the Arthurian legends of once the future king and what have you. So uh, it's it's it just happens to be two Brits that do it. Um, and you do have Archimedes. You have an owl figure in in that mythology. So there is something to be said for it. Mostly they're, they are totally stealing it. They're just stealing it from someone else, not necessarily from each other. Yeah, well, as Tony Kushner said in Angels in America Part 1, there are limits to the human imagination. It's something you learn after your second theme party. It's all been done before. Yeah. Um, Especially but- in comics. Especially in comics. I write yes. music for a living. I, I understand this deeply. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, so now, Matthew, had you read this before? I had read this, but I had read this back in college, which uh, to age myself, I'm about to be 35. So I read this about 16, 17 years ago, honestly. So yeah, it had been I was really, out of graduate really, school really before you were in kindergarten. So let's not do that. Let's not age either one of us, shall we? <laughs> yeah, but you use the timepiece, so it's fine. That's um, true. <laughs> John is now pulling his his crow's nest back. Yes. Um, um, and Josh, you have read. You're a big fan of Neil Gaiman. You've read a lot of his novels, and mm-hmm. you've read Sandman as well. I'm almost sure that we have talked about this. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we kind of talked about what we were going to recommend. Um, I did want to kind of stay within Josh's vein, and I also know that he is a huge D and D fan. Um, this gave me ideas. Yes. Okay, that's good. Had you read this one before? No. Okay. Excellent. So, um, I, my concern in talking about this is that there is something that in there's a there's something that's brought up in the first issue that I feel like I'm going to end up spending about a half an hour on, but I want to bring it up anyway. Um, So before I do that, I want to start with something because Josh, while you are a comic book fan, I don't know that I would say that you are the same level of nerd as Matthew or myself. Um, Absolutely not. So I'm just going to say this and I'm going to let you guys discuss. I think the weakness in this book, and it's a it's a wonderful book, but I think the weakness in this book is almost that it relies just a little too much on people knowing the characters that weave in and out of the story and make appearances. And I don't know that it has the quite the same um I don't know it has, that it has quite the same sort of standalone as a lot of the other things that we have talked about on Comics Corner. So the weirdest, thing, the weirdest thing in the world, so the only reason I could fully understand this, because it has characters that I have not seen even through reading Sandman and all of that. Like, but my, what I loved just about my knowledge and to tie it into the stuff that we've done is when we did Madame Xanadu, the amount of research I had to do into things to plan things um, was really like really helped me along with this. And then like, of course, like, you know, in the later issues when dream shows up, I'm like, my guy, like, (laughs) what's up, dude. Um, And like, but yeah, like there's a lot of, 
I always get that vibe with comic. I think that's my general perception of comic books that are within a certain universe. We've done a couple, like when we did Witches a while ago with Andrea, that was like, you know, you can figure out what's going on. Like that's not a, there's not this whole extended Witches universe going on where this plays so heavily into like the C and D tier DC catalog. Um, like, you know, it's a big deal when Madame Xanadu makes like a full blown appearance. Like, um, yeah, you know, there's something going on there. Yeah. Like I, I didn't really think of it as a weakness when I was reading it just because I got what they were referencing but I think you are totally right in that I could see that being like a weak point to the way it is delivering its story. Cause things could be deeply confusing if you don't know who they're meeting. Yeah. I think that they're, I, I agree, but I don't know to what extent because having the familiarity with the trench coat brigade that I do and the majority of the characters in there, I'm, I'm not a good test subject for it. I think that, um, I think that Gaiman does a wonderful job kind of setting up the four main guides for this character who's going to take him on a journey through magic. I do think we get enough there for Phantom Stranger and Mr. E. Um, and uh, why am I playing Constantine, obviously? Um, I, do, I do wonder if the sheer amount of guest stars and the sheer amount of characters that you track for such a short amount of time I, I do wonder if that would start to get a little confusing in there. But at the same point in time, the like like Boston brand, that one you're not gonna get. There, there's not really quite enough setup for that character to really understand the significance of why he's there, who he is. Um say that one more time, sorry. I didn't I didn't hear you. Like Boston brand. Boston ah. brand is one character that I think really doesn't come across well in terms of that would be a confusing one. I had no um, idea who he was. But someone like Zatanna, who makes, you know, a later appearance because she gets more time and and dialogue in there, you you learn a lot more about her and it's enough, right? So I think it's I think it's a little I agree it's a weakness. I just don't know how impregnable it really makes it. Um so so I still think I still think it's I think for a a seasoned fantasy reader, I think they would be okay. I think if you were not a big fantasy reader and you were just getting into the genre, I don't know this is the first comic I would give you. You know, I think this would be a little too advanced. But. Yeah, to me, it's kind of like baking a cake, baking a birthday cake and having it without any of the frosting. It's not that you need the frosting. It just makes it a little richer. It makes the flavors a little bolder. The makes- only one where I... The only one that really got me, like, out of all of them, like, the Boston brand, yeah, like, did get me. The only one that really got me was in the final issue when Death appears. And they don't explain her at all. No. They explain, no. they explain Destiny just enough. And, like, Destiny's design as a character is also makes a lot of sense with the book. And, like, you get context clues as to what his deal is. You have no idea that that's Death. No clue. Yeah, and I think he does this as well in his, uh, by the way, just in case we didn't say this, spoiler alert in full effect. Spoiler, 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 spoiler. Yeah, I think he kind of does the same thing in his Black Orchid series as well, um, where there's almost this 
feeling of, which I think actually might have to do with the time frame in which is in which it was written, where graphic novels weren't a big thing, and people were writing for monthly series. And I think that this was something where people who weren't weekly comic readers, I'm going to the store every, at that point, I think it was either Wednesday and Friday or just Friday. Um, it wasn't Wednesday yet. Uh, it wasn't all on Wednesday yet. Were uh, the only ones who were reading comics and people just never expected anyone to read, you know, anyone outside of that audience to read. So I think that might have a little bit something to do with it. Um, although I'm not a historian. And historian. Sorry, I realize I'm supposed to use and before an H word. Well, it's interesting too, because this was, um, I, I was very curious about the format because looking at how many pages per installment, right, was fascinating because these were all, these were not your, the same length as a typical single issue comic. So it's released in as books one through four. They are called the Books of Magic as the series. And in part, that's because they are all what, what in the comics game we call uh, oversized um, issues. So I think it was, I think I counted, it was something like 40 pages of story content per, per issue, maybe even more. Yeah, they were, they were 44 big books. Um, Cause Matthew, you would have been four when these came out. Um, Only if it was I, the end of the year. <laughs> um, but they were, they were oversized. I think they were something like two ninety nine. I mean, they were like this impossibly outrageous. No, no, three, they were, they were three ninety five each. Oh, three ninety five. Okay, three ninety five. Yeah, could you imagine? Um, but they were, um, yeah, they were oversized. I remember when these came out. This was a big deal because this was really the second thing that uh, he had done after Sandman was such a, a huge hit, um, which really kind of launched Vertigo, which is an imprint that focused on more adult books with more. Uh, Thinking. literary themes and more mature content and yeah and yeah no they were and there was this and a few others but this was you know neil had really kind of put himself up there as kind of this guy who was changing the game in terms of comics and going mm -hmm. much more adult and literary and so this felt like a passion project where they were like we love sandman what else do you want to do and i'm sure he pitched this to, to kelly Berger and was just like let's try something different with the format. And she was probably like, why not? You're, you're, you're Midas right now. Let's see if this turns to gold and, and tie it in somehow. And yeah. there you go. And it did. Now I did, I, I think, I kind of want to say the first issue is my favorite um, because I love the idea of kind of walking through the, the history of the world, not so much from an historical perspective as much as from a perspective of magic and faith and belief um, because there is, you know, there's a bit of Christianity in here. There's a bit of uh, Wiccan and Pagan history in here. Um, and um, the thing that fascinates me about the first one is the thing that I think we're probably going to spend a lot of time on. Cause I imagine we're going to like not necessarily nerd out on this, um, but at least have a mildly, heated debate, which is, I love the fact that he was talking about how science pushes out magic, how this sort of human understanding of things. And it, 
it made me think, I don't know whether he was prescient, whether this was happening in the early 90s and I just wasn't aware of it. Maybe I wasn't aware of things politically, but we do culturally tend to look at things as very binary. It's black, it's white, it's good, it's bad, it's this or it's that. Um, why can't science and magic exist together? Why is it so difficult for us to have, I mean, you know, Christianity, there's nothing that is necessarily less magical in Christianity. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, well, there's think, a whole lot there. I think that's the, the thing I pick up on from, from what you're putting down, John, is that it's, it's not a matter of science and magic. It's a matter of science and faith, right? Whatever you have faith in whether it's magic, whether it's religion, um, whether it's, you know, Gaia, it's, it's, and it can be as pagan or, or monotheist as you want, but it's, there's always been this idea, it feels like, and it feels like it gets even more and more severe as time goes on. Um, it, it gets almost partisan in that sense, or tribal, which is, you can either have science as your, you know, go-to, or you can have faith but the two rarely ever can really truly meet. And that one is a threat in some way to the other and is treated like a threat to the other's existence. Um, when that's actually not the case, but it, it does seem that that it's certainly asking that question and certainly the history of the Phantom Stranger who is making, is the guide for, um, for the main character for that first section also has had different backstories and writers tying him in as, as Judas Iscariot or what have you is. Yeah. That didn't happen until. No, for much later. Until much sure. later. Yeah. But, but it, it, it has, it has been questioned in the past and they, so, and there is a lot of, you also look at um, throughout the series, they bring up the idea of angels, the idea of, of the eternals of, of the endless so faith and magic and science are all what, what's beautiful about the book is that they do sort of show there is a relation to all these things, that they do coexist within the framework of our lives, whether we understand it or not, which I thought was actually a really, really fascinating and beautiful way of structuring it. I think there's like a really interesting, oh, I want to say it's, it must, it's in the fourth issue. It's when they, spoiler alert, whoo when they go into the future and they keep going further there's a quote i'd have to go dig it up but it's um they advanced so far into science that it might as well have been magic like they they understood it so little that it might as well have been magic but like to your point john of the binary of it i always think of like the modern era like philosophically was a very binary era just like in in real world politics and history of like you're either a capitalist or you're a communist like you are good or you are evil um and like that is i've had conversations with people about this before of like that's a very easy way to like justify like large armed conflicts is you are us or you are them um and around the time that the cold war started to like dissipate and the berlin wall started to go down and things like that there was this like sort of explosion of like the postmodern like gray area of existence thought. So like in the nineties, which is right around, I mean, this, this was written in 90. So it's a, like, it's a year earlier that, but I mean, it's right at the right time when like 
you know, 91 to 93 is when all of that stuff kind of went down. And like, it's really interesting to see how like, it's not like the, I would never say it's the first like instance of mainstream this thought because that came like way, 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 way before this. But um, of like, there's, it's really demonstrating like the binary of like, oh, we can have magic or we can have science and you can push them out. And like, that's a very old idea. And then it will just sort of like the narrative and the characters sort of like weave in between, like through those gray areas. And it's one of like, I always think of, um, I always forget what they're called, but like dream and death, the, the endless ones. The are endless. They yeah. The I, endless. I always, I always want to call them the ageless ones, the endless ones are like the perfect example of like a gray area of like Gaiman's like philosophy. It is everything you think of like in like existence, I guess, and then inverted. Um, and it just like, they have weird motivations that don't make sense to anybody. And it's not like they're doing things for good or for bad. Like even in the, like in the last scene where they're showing like the end of the universe, they're like, yeah, we're just going to shut this thing down. It's not like, oh, we're evil and we're ending the world. Like, you know, with all the superhero movies, I've got a death laser and I'm ending the world. These guys are like, okay, we're just shutting things down. Um, yeah. Well, and throughout um, this book, the characters keep saying they're like Constantine, you know, is, is sort of an, an agent of neutrality. Whereas like, there are no good guys. There are no bad guys. Stop thinking that way. There are guys who are doing things to us that we have to defend ourselves against, but that does not make them good or bad. And then you have other characters like Mr. E who absolutely believe there is pure evil that he needs to act against or for. Um, and so what Gaiman does is he shows, as he often does, is he shows these characters that represent these different viewpoints and shows and puts them in a situation where they have to interact and they have to have an influence on each other for the events to unfold. And that's great storytelling. Yeah. I, Josh, I feel like every time you and I specifically do a, a comics corner together, we always end up talking about religion and monotheism. It's my thing. Monotheism. It's right. my thing. It's fascinating. <laughs> I know. Um, but it's also Neil Gaiman. So yeah. it's like, why I love but him. it's interesting that we, when we, the last time we talked about this, and again, I think this is a character who uh, really does walk this kind of line between science and magic is Wonder Woman um, yeah. who sort of deals with faith and belief and yet at the same time sort of has these advanced scientific principles that she has learned from Amazonian culture and and such so just one of those things that it, it's really fascinating to me that we we culturally not we the three of us specifically sort of have this thing about this or that instead of saying this and that um Maybe I'm just greedy and I want it all. I don't know. I don't know. Um, Easy yeah, right. so let's move on to the second issue where John Constantine might possibly be the worst babysitter in the world. Ever. If you know that people are trying to kill him, so like the smartest thing to do is just to leave him outside in a strange city, in a strange country by himself. It just seems very odd to me. Like maybe saying, hey, can you wait in the, the other world. room? Not the worst babysitter in the world. Had he been the worst babysitter in the world, the kid would have died. The fact he did not die actually proves he was not the worst babysitter in the world. Let's be very well, clear. yeah, I mean, there were a couple times where the kid didn't die because of, of Boston Brand, Dead Man. 
Yes, but the Constantine who was at that point, what what did they call it? He was riding the something, the probability path or something. I think we can just both agree that anytime you put a child in danger that you're taking care of, it Maybe just makes great. you automatically the worst babysitter in the world. A terrible babysitter. A terrible babysitter. But I, if the child lives, you are not the worst babysitter of all time. Okay. Well, we can debate that. But okay. We'll get there that. later. We'll worst get there. babysitter of all time. But yeah, we'll we'll accept that. I mean, I guess Mr. E might be the worst babysitter of all time because he does try to kill. Actively him. tried to kill the actively child. went for it. On the other hand, Constantine close second. But anyway, because we sort of all knew that. That was kind of telegraphed from the beginning of the piece. We all sort of knew mystery was a bit batshit crazy. Um just a bit. Yes. And uh as Per usual in this, Neil Gaiman bringing in some very, very D-list characters in Baron Winter and Terry 13. Um, Matthew, do you even know who Terry 13 is? I've heard the name before, but I swear to God, I, like I've heard of him, but I know nothing about him. I think I, I think it was in the um, in things like Day of Vengeance, you know, some of the more like mystical crossovers from the DC universe around the time of like uh infinite crisis they they sort of mention him and i think they kill him um because why wouldn't you uh but uh but i i never i i never actually heard him utter a line of dialogue quite frankly yeah he's kind of a he's he's kind of a d-lister who appeared in backup stories in the 70s as one of those people who was like going around debunking magic but always like managed to just assume it was an illusion, but all of these magic things were going on around him. And then there was Baron Winter, who was part of Night Force. That's a whole other 80s series. But yes, lots of lots of uh, guest stars. So many cameos. Yes, a lot of a lot of cameos. Um, but I did like the um, the second issue for a couple of reasons. First of all, I completely stole. Um, a couple of the Madame Xanadu lines directly from here. You did. I, I, I did, did notice that. Yeah. Yes, no we shame. all recognize them. Fantastic. Yeah. Look, the second uh, Madame Xanadu, like it showed, like, Madame, like I figured out we were going to Madame Xanadu's parlor. They opened the door and like my head just like out of pure muscle memory, like played the intro scenes to like Madame Xanadu as it was happening. I was like, I had the intro music playing in my head. I was like, this is it. We did it. Now, in fairness, that's always her the first line that she has in any comic. Oh yeah, yeah. We've we've talked uh, about this. No, I, I just thought it was yeah. it was wonderful. Um, I also love the fact that there was a demon ball, and I don't mean demon ball. I mean demon ball. Yes. 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 That was very fun. very fun. Yeah. Um, which I, I personally always like, and I personally always enjoy. Um, and I'm sorry, I know I'm going fast here, but I want to make sure I get us in. Um, into a reasonable listening time for our our, the, our lovely viewers who are here with us on episode 18 of Comics Corner. Um, what I do want to talk about, because this is something that I think Josh will nerd about, and Matthew, I think you will nerd about, this actually ties in with probably, I think, the most popular of, um, of the Sandman series, which is bringing back Shakespeare's Child, Queen Titania, and uh, the whole, um, that whole story arc of uh, dream, dream World, I think it was, yeah. of Neil Gaiman. Um, and um, yeah, were you excited? I know Matthew's read it before, but Josh, were you kind of like, oh no, look, 
I yeah. get this. Yeah, I was like, well, my first thing was, uh-oh. Uh, was, like, they showed up, and I, like, saw the artwork, and I was, like, figuring out what was going on, and I was like, oh, no, we're in danger. Um, but I uh, I had forgotten about this section, and, um, yeah, it, it was f- I was really glad to see the the rules of the Fae appear um, because they are so ridiculous. Um, and like the second he was like, you got to check it. I, they had said we were going to fairy and then I had, they were going to the fairy lands and I had stopped for a little bit, like in between like reading and I came back and they were talking about things. And he was like, yeah, you can't have your keys on you. And I was like, uh Oh, I like instantly was just like, I've made the connection. Um, but I really enjoyed, let's see. The, 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 the small guy trying to put the bracelet on, on him. I was like, Oh, Oh, we're just coming out with the punches. Aren't we like just right at the beginning? Like, Oh yes. The marketplace. Um, that was a good scene. Yeah. It was I mean, this was my favorite of the of the four books. This was absolutely my I found the most engaging and and it's the part of the world that I was probably most a fan of in there. But I love rules. I love the rules of the Fae because rules are great. Rules are what you build tension off of and and progression. And I, I thought this was an absolutely lovely, um, really lovely uh, escapism, so to speak. I also really appreciated the artwork in here. Um, And you notice that with each book, there is a totally different artist with a different art style to kind of represent the the leg of the journey um, that he's on uh, with his different babysitters. The full full page, the first one of the marketplace on... Oh my God, I could stare at it for hours. And then of the last last issue too, of the last book too, the full spread of like when they go to like near the end of time is... Also, I like I was like I would happily buy a print of either of these and like put them on the wall like totally agree those were those were absolutely poster quality yeah um and to kind of see him tie I mean clearly you know he created Sandman so he clearly um was not had a shot for for using these characters um uh, and I love the sort of one page spreads of, of kind of seeing the different levels of the the magical portion of the DC universe, because again, you know, we always yeah. see so much of the science and the modern world and, and all of that. So I love to see that. Um, I did actually want to point out, it's interesting because Marvel uses the same rules for the Feyland land when they do it up in, when they have it up in Asgard, there's a whole thing of the X-Men and the new mutants in Asgard. And, you know, one of them turned into a fey creature because she ate something in the Feyland. land. I can't remember who came up with those rules first because it was neither Marvel nor DC. It was somebody else. Like no, the, no. I, I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty old. I think it yeah. might be like a. It I might just be Tolkien mythology thing. thing. Yeah, I. Yeah. I really want to say it's Tolkien, but I'm like, I don't. I don't know. I can't. Um, it might just be a mythology thing. Um, but I loved when they went into the dreamlands. It was such a my. It was my favorite moment of this whole thing of like they're hanging out these guys are like we're in charge here of the dreamland like what's up if you see anything let us know and then dreams like oh is that what we're doing now and i always like hear it with like 
just like the most like chilled out like oh is that what we're doing now like just like kind of sleepy and then just like some slide guitar in the back because it's just <laughs> so much cooler um do you continually score comics when you're reading them now i score most things at this point my brain cannot i cannot shut that part of my brain off anymore um so a lot of the time it's not my music like i'll just layer other people's music over it um but like because usually if i'm like if i layer some of my own stuff i have to write it down like creativity is a finite resource in my brain <laughs> like um, and matthew when you're reading comics do you just continually write or do you look at composition and think oh i want to do i want to do a page like that yes yes that's exactly i i literally was looking at this i was like oh crap i can do a, a story in which uh the protagonist is not particularly active and every chapter is just a different thing i was like yep cool cool totally gonna do it uh i'm working on a, a pitch for an adaptation of the odyssey now set in uh the end of the civil war about a soldier who's trying to make his way from uh, galveston texas back up to uh the north and it's going to go through all of it and uh you bet i'm stealing some shit from this so is it, is it the prequel to on his social media please is it uh is it a prequel to oh brother where art thou is it the unofficial no, prequel? No, no. <laughs> it, it's not a it's not a prequel um it might be set in the same world though because there will be a cyclops you yeah, better that's usually oh brother where art thou is usually held as like an odyssey of the movie like that's usually yep. what it is like it's fantastic but this is this is is like Jonah Hex meets the Odyssey. That is is where I'm going with it. Um, I'd also like to plug that uh, out of any soundtrack song ever made, uh, the recording of uh, "I Am a Man of Constant Sorrow" in "Oh Brother Where Art Thou" is in my top two like soundtrack songs of all time. Like, I mean, it's incredible. It's it's insane. It's so good. ten out of ten would recommend. Uh, go look it up on all, all streaming right. platforms. I will do that because I've never seen that movie or listened to the soundtrack. You know, this gives us an idea, though. I think that there is, uh, Josh, I think we should have a discussion about creating a Spotify playlist for all of the recommendations on oh, Comics Corner um, that you can be listening to as you as you read them. I think there, there might be something there, guys. There we go. Um, let us move on to the fourth issue. And what's interesting about the fourth issue is that whole thing of them going into the future, that is actually tied in very specifically into the DC Universe continuity because it, it had just happened in the Legion of Superheroes where magic made pretty much every science thing fail and fall apart. And so the entire universe was pretty decimated. Um, and... Um, uh, yeah, and so that was kind of what had happened, which led into the Legion five-year run later, which if you're a comic nerd, you know, is one of, if not the most popular Legion run, definitely one of the most popular Legion runs of all time. Um, did you ever read that, Matthew? I've read parts of it. I haven't read the whole thing, yeah. but I've read parts of that run. It's dark. It's, it's really dark. dark. It's like, it's like dark. Like these, it's dark. Yeah, super dark. Well, uh, and, but but comics were getting darker at this point, you know, and that was the the big thing. You had the success of Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns, and you're about to kill Superman in, in comics at this time. You're getting ready to break Bruce Wayne's back. Um, like comics were at a point in the early '90s where they were saying, "Let's go darker." 
let's have big dark status quo changes. And that was felt all over the DC universe and in Marvel at that point too. Yeah. Um, welcome to the nineties, ladies and gentlemen, and, and everyone in between. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty dark stuff. Um, so here's the thing that I, my, the last issue does get to me a little bit because- In a good way or bad way? Well, I don't know because the sheer manipulation of this kid of saying to him, well, you have the choice, make it. And he makes the choice, but then you find out that he's already made the choice unknowingly because they manipulated him into going with them on this journey. And I'm just sort of like, that just seems, that just seems wrong. They pulled the old Chris Nolan. Yeah. So here's my question to the both of you. From a storytelling perspective, from a structural perspective, does that actually, it's one of those things, is, does that payoff actually rob your experience of everything that you've done before it? Does it deliver what you want? Like, do you think it's a cheat? You know, I mean, I think it's a cheat, but does it, a, is it a cheat that actually still delivers the kind of emotional payoff that you wanted out of the story? I think my, so as a person who spends most of their time working on stories for other people, I'm very sensitive to the ways in which they create stories from like a writing perspective. Um, and I've just read so many books that like at this point, you know, I could see where this was going when they hit, they were like, Oh, you have a choice. And I was like, and especially once we got to the thing with the Fae, I was like, Oh, if you're putting in the way that the Fae do things, we're clearly going to do a one, two switcheroo. Like it's the ending of inception like moment. Um, but like, I think like I was, when he said, no, I was like, oh, bummer. I would really like to see how this pans out. Um, but also I respect your choices because like you, you've seen things that you should not have seen and like, you should just let go. And then I got the end. I was like, guys, guys, come on. Like just, just let him be alone. And I was, and I was like weirdly like just bummed out for this completely made up character. And I was like, he's gonna have to go through so much now. And then like from a storytelling perspective, I was like, this is this is your way of either making more issues or just leaving it closed. I was like, this is your like, we we didn't close the door, but we left it unlocked just in case. So here's my here's my question then. So if if the MacGuffin of the whole thing, which is this kid has to choose, will I go down the path of magic or will I reject the path of magic? So what was the point of this entire journey if the choice is made right at the very beginning, even if he doesn't realize it? What was the purpose of this journey in that sense? Well, I mean, I think the purpose of the journey, you know, it, considering the spoiler alert of the choice being made in issue one is that, you know, it was really not about making a choice. It was about training someone to understand what they're going through. I mean, it's very hero, you know, it's very journey of a thousand heroes, right. um, uh, which are a hero of a thousand paces, which of course makes complete sense. Um, I don't know that you would get away with this story today 
because they're essentially taking advantage of a 13 year old. Um, 12, of a 12 year old. 12 year old, not in a way that, is he 12? I thought he was 13. Oh no, he is 12. Um, not, not in any sort of way that is physical. Um, just to make that clear, there's nothing. Uh, yeah, not, none of that. Yeah. This I think, is all I, uh, advantage of his magical prospects. Yes. I, but, but here's I, the thing. I don't think you get away with it, but I don't think you, it's, it's a question of like taking advantage of a minor. I think you don't get away with it because I think in storytelling these days, we want the protagonist to feel like they have some agency in the story. This is a book where he does not actually have any agency. I he's, don't know he that he's, he's actually the protagonist, to be honest with you. No. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. I was going I, to bring that up. Yeah, I really don't think he is. I think... Um, this is John's book, and we we all just inherit it. Like, <laughs> not, not, you, not you, John. John Constantine. Yeah. Uh, well, I... I I wonder, is is John Constantine actually the protagonist? I actually don't think he is. I actually think the Phantom Stranger is the protagonist because he is the one who sets everything in motion and makes everything. Uh, he is He's the one who calls them together. He's the one who gives them their assignments. He's the one who sets everything together. I actually think he is sort of the, um, you know, the mastermind behind everything. Um, but just to, to circle back to what you were what you were asking earlier, um, it didn't it didn't ruin it for me by any stretch of the imagination. Any stretch of the imagination, I think what it did do was not teach Tim to be properly prepared because he had people protecting him at every turn. There's a lot of peas in that. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of peas in that last sentence. Um, I think that it didn't prepare him because he had people protecting him at every turn. And I don't think that as a 12 year old, he understands, oh, this is going to be me one day. Um, I think that the, you know, the, the idea of him is when Mr. E was walking him through the fourth issue into the future um, and, uh, and um, is saying, well, you might go good, you might go bad. That's a lot to take in for a twelve-year-old. Um, yeah. A lot to take in for anybody. You mean the yeah. you mean the eventual heat death of the universe is a lot to take in for a twelve-year-old? Or the well, vision—the vision that he's going to become a magical demonic force that kills a hundred people, like in front of himself. Like, yeah, that's a lot to take in. Yeah, that's a lot to take in, and I just I think that that manipulation, especially to a essentially a passive character. You know, I do think I do think this is a brilliant storytelling um, in the sense of how do you make the person who has the most screen time into a passive character in what is essentially their own. How do you make them a supporting character in their own story? Sure, and it's done a lot with with protagonists. Like there are tons of protagonists. Oftentimes in stories about quests, um, the the person with the most amount of time may not actually have the most agency. You know, if if you're a reactionary character, you are by definition a passive character in many ways. Um, and that's the that's the thing is part of your level of enjoyment of this story, I think, is going to be how much you as a reader enjoy reading about from the perspective of a passive character versus an active character. So I think as someone is is reading into this, I think that is something to 
to take into account of how much enjoyment you'll get out of it. Yeah. Um, um, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Josh. Oh, I was going to side sidebar because uh, I don't think it's ever happened. Uh, Neil Gaiman, this is a very interesting thing that I would love to see him do eventually, is he has never written a book where the characters have smartphones. And like the concept of that, because like that's in that's the thing right now that's being explored a ton in most like artsy media is the impact of cell phones and social media. And I feel like as a person who like the closest he gets is an American gods. Like they have the God of like the internet. Um, But like, even still, because like you spend, I'm not going to spoil American gods of who you spend your time with is very old school. Um, But like, I feel like that would be really interesting because like, Neil is such a, his his way of writing is so interesting in that I feel like somebody said this before I'm definitely not the first person to say this like mythology explains like how phenomena came about in the world like it's a way of it's a teaching tool I always think of Neil as like a mythology of mythologies like his books are mytho like myths of how the myths came about like we sure. are one, we are one layer, we are one layer deeper in the Russian nesting doll. Um, and I would love to see how he tackles such a complex, like the entire knowledge of humanity being available. You know what I mean? Like that seems like a that is a, a Neil Gaiman sized topic to cover. Um, actually, you know who covers it really brilliantly in about four pages is Greg Rucka in his first Wonder Woman run. Huh. Yeah. Um, covers it really brilliantly and literally in about four pages where it's just a conversation between Diana and Aries. Um, and it's super fascinating. Um, okay. I do want to wrap this up. So I want to yep. wrap this up with our, our usual last question, which is um, Matthew, are you glad you reread this book? Did I make a good recommendation? Absolutely. I'm very glad. Uh, to have reread this book. Uh, one, it was really cool seeing a lot of these characters that I don't get to see. Two, it's fucking Neil Gaiman at the height of his powers or approaching his peak, as it were. His nearness. Um, all of his nearness. Um, And three, the, the artwork I found absolutely beautiful throughout. And, and I'm a big fan of seeing different art styles throughout parts of stories and how they reinforce and inform as opposed to being just a, you know, the artist wasn't available. So we need someone totally different kind of, which you and I know about John. Yeah. Um, have you ever read Promethea? I have not read Promethea. Okay, that we is should, one we, we should we, put onto a comic book. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, James Williams III. We'll, my we'll guy. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, absolutely. Would recommend. I do think fans of Neil Gaiman, fans of fantasy, Fans of Harry Potter, absolutely pick this up. You will enjoy the hell out of it. And Josh, did I make a good recommendation for you? Absolutely. I love it's it's just spooky enough. Like I I love like there's just enough spook in there. As you know, that's my thing. I love that. I love me some magic at all times. Um and I'm a big fan of Neil. He was fantastic, John. Yeah. Um, and I do want to say as, as harsh as I am on this book, this is one of those books that I consistently reread because I just think it's absolutely brilliant. 
Um, it's the Books of Magic, Neil Gaiman, art by uh, John Bolton did the first issue, Scott Hampton did the second, Charles Vest did the third, and Paul Johnson did the fourth issue. Um, it's just an absolutely amazing book. Go to your local comic shop to pick it up. Uh, if you don't know where your local comic shop is, go to comicshoplocator.com, enter your zip code, and it will find one for you. Please do support your local comic book stores. You have no idea how much uh, they um, they love it when you come in um, and how much a, you know, a one-book purchase means to them. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. And if you can buy three or four books, go ahead, buy three or four. There's plenty of stuff out there. Um, thank you for sipping, sitting with us on episode 18 of sipping the, your stew I was like, with yeah, us. Sipping. Is that where you were going? I thought you, you were trying to bring the food metaphor back into it. I wasn't going to try to bring the food metaphor back because now I'm really hungry. And I was like, maybe I can get away with not eating. You, but now I just started the... fasting for Yom Kippur. I'm going to be like, God, oh, yikes. oh, it's just 24 hours. You'll be asleep for like nine of them. Um, <laughs> Uh, that is, by the way, just so anyone doesn't add us, that is Matthew and I picking on each other because we love each other. That is not in any way, shape or form me mocking uh, fasting holidays. So just so we're aware of that. Um, yeah, I just thought I'd put that out there just to be That's sure. Fair. That's fair. Um, and Matthew is laughing at me as per usual. As uh, per usual. Yes. As per usual. Uh, yes, the next episode of Comics Corner, uh, we will have a very, very special guest, and I am very excited for it. Um, and uh, after that, we will hit episode 20 of the Comics Corner. Um, and I think we're going to be doing something a little special for that, too. So stick around. Uh, don't forget to listen to all of our main content. Uh, just two weeks ago, we released the last of the first season of The Cruelest Month with Love in the Time of Hitler, written by Matthew Klein. Um, don't forget our fantastic and fabulous game show. Heidi and Nora don't know nerd things. Um, and actually, in one of those episodes soon, you'll find out that Matthew and Kelly don't know nerd things either. <laughs> Listen next week. You might just hear that episode. It might, it might be next week, depending on it how our posting schedule goes. Week. Yeah, it might be next week. You might find out. There you go. Uh, so do come back. Thank you again for spending some time with us. We release new content every Friday. Thank you so much for spending time with us. And we will always do our best to remind you why April is the cruelest month. Thank you.